You're listening to the Sonic Guild Colorado podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Fisher, musician, producer, and creator. This episode of our industry-focused collaboration with the Roots Music Project features Brian Keating, bass player and music director for Boulder's Ain't No Mountain High Enough, a Motown and Stax Records tribute band. We spoke virtually about the challenges of the business side of music, how to build thriving relationships with audiences, the importance of investing in your music business, and so much more. This is the Sonic Guild Colorado Podcast with Brian Keating. You are tuning in to the Sonic Guild Colorado Podcast. I am here today with Brian Keating. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Ellen. Good to be here. You are a bass player, music director for Boulder's Ain't a Mountain High Enough, a Stax and Motown Records review band. For three years, you were a professional bass player outside of Nashville, commuting to Washington, D.C. You have a lot of industry experience. What are some of the challenges of the business side of making music? It's such a great question because I think that thinking about the music business, it is a business. And in my experience, it's so easy to focus on the music part, the creating, the arranging, uh, just whatever has to do with the actual art and creativity of it, that then it can be tough to move over to the business part part that is also so important. So yeah, it is a challenge. One of the ways that I look at it with the Ain't No Mountain High Enough band and then other projects and bands that I've been in is that anytime I get to a point where the project is charging money to uh, ticket holders, uh, you know, people that are attending the event, I consider it now a business. And so I look at myself as a small business owner. And then I look at the the band or the music or whatever art is created as a product. And then how am I going to market this tends to be the biggest challenge. How can I let people know that this product is available? And then and how can that be done in a way that makes it a successful business, not only for those involved on the business end, but then also the people that want to be connected to that business or in this term, you know, that want to be fans of the band or connected to the music in some way. So I think the um, the biggest challenge is how to orient to the music as a business and then how to market that and get that out there so that it's available to people. What percentage of time would you say that you spend on various activities versus creating the music and then the promotion, the running, the the business, marketing. Do you have like a set schedule that you like to keep or what are some processes that you keep both of those respectively going? Yeah, I feel like they're all kind of happening at the same time and in different ways. And that might be uh, how my brain works or just how I orient to it. So much focus is on the business side of it right now and the marketing piece of it and how to uh, make events and make shows that are really interesting that people want to buy tickets to. With Ain't No Mountain High Enough, we're in the unique position of having this really niche tribute band where we only play uh, usually twice a year. And of course, all the music is there. It's the amazing catalog of Motown music and then all the soul music from Stax Records. So. 
the music is already created, which I know would be different than if someone was in an original band or, you know, singer songwriter, but some of the musical challenges that come up for us are so many of those older songs will have fade out endings. So when we get together as a band, we start playing it. And then all of a sudden it's the, uh, you know, the, the conflict of like, wait a minute, how do we end this? And an easy way could be to uh, YouTube how other people have ended their covers or how the artist didn't perform in a live performance. But we wanted to, you know, take some creativity in figuring out like, okay, how can we uh, end this in a way that might be unique to this band? So focus and attention to music is more so on arranging the endings of these songs and then how to create set lists that are really energizing. So then the flip side of that is most of the focus is then on how do we book the band? How do we get people interested in the shows? How do we make shows that are interesting? And then what I found LM is that while I'm doing that, then more music stuff comes to mind. A new song comes in. It's like, Oh yes, that would be great. So it's, uh, I think Rick Rubin talks about this in his, uh, his new book where sometimes focusing on something totally different, gives the space for that new idea to come in that's unrelated. And that's definitely been my experience with mixing the music with the business too. In terms of cover band and approaching the copyright or licenses to the songs, what is that process like for you guys? Yeah, great question. Um, We haven't done anything with it. The venues that we play in, uh, from my understanding, are covered under ASCAP and, you know, have all the licensing rights for performances. And, uh, you know, I also believe that all publicity is good publicity. So if, you know, something happens and uh, we were contacted, uh, we'll work with that as as it comes up. Thinking of that question, we did record uh, back in 2021, right after things were starting to open up a little bit more. We recorded uh, what I might call almost like a music documentary where we talked about how this music impacted our lives. And then we had a 12 song set that we did. And we had uh, Hazel Miller come in and be our featured vocalist with that. Kimiana Lee was also involved as a vocalist with that. And we made this amazing movie that is so uh, so much fun and so special to us that we think people would love, but we've tried to get it on public access and we've been bumping up against the different licensing agreements. Uh, so right now that's something that's still two years out is stalled and uh, yeah, hopefully it will come out at some time because I would love for people to see that. Yeah, I had a similar experience. I made a documentary about a group of retirees who started a rock band doing a lot of the same kind of like covers and, you know, reworking old songs. And it's such a sweet thing. And I think when people are talking about music and how it impacts their lives and seeing the ways that it impacts our community, it's so engaging. But again, yeah, the the festival circuit was like this. Do you have a a lot of money to get the rights to these songs? Because we can't, (laughs) we can't put this in unless you've like cleared it, you know, with like Bonnie Raitt. I'm like, well, I'll, I'll sit on it and, you know, maybe someday it'll come out. But so I I feel your pain. It's, it's hard to kind of have this story that you're so invested in. And then, um, you know, it's, it's a crazy world and copyright and licensing. It's so complicated that, um, you know, it's really tricky to navigate those waters when you're, you're in it. Yes. And I think so much of the reason why we hear covers in movies 
because they don't want to pay for the uh, the master tapes or the uh, the full production uh, version. Exactly. So what kind of goals do you make as a band and what are some ways that you keep on track to meet those goals? Yeah, I think uh, it, it all goes back to how can we create an event and an experience that uh, people can attend and really feel a part of. And I know that's that's a broad uh, answer and also kind of goal to have, but I think setting up that framework then has everything fall into place. And that was, you know, uh, the big goal for the band was we wanted to do this niche tribute because we didn't want to mix Motown songs with different types of covers. And we didn't want to go from uh, a Temptation song and then into like Sweet Child of Mine or something. It just it didn't make sense. And it just wasn't something I would want to see as a um, audience member and wasn't something that I wanted to play. So we really wanted to have this really um, strict model of these are the songs that we're going to do. And then from there, goals of like, how can we recreate this in a way that sounds authentic to what people might have expected to hear in the 1960s? but then also be really uh, appealing and interesting to uh, listeners who are going to concerts, you know, in this era. And so then that was a goal to be authentic and be as close as possible while also adding the energy and excitement of uh, a lot of improvisation, uh, songs, you know, being blended together. Uh, um, Always thinking about how to grow uh, the size of our live shows thinking about how to grow the attendance i think of uh the analogy of like uh replanting house plants or repotting you know we don't want to go from a small container to something too large so we really try and grow the attendance at each show but not in a way that is unrealistic by booking in a room that's too big or uh, having ticket prices be too high so uh making sure that we're really incrementally uh growing and then also offering a new experience each time even though so many of the songs are the same as they have been for you know over 60 years what is your approach to marketing for shows once you've booked the perfect size venue yeah uh i start as early as possible so and again this is something that is uh specific to us being this niche tribute band that's only playing uh, twice a year. But right now, our next show is the uh, Motown Haunted Prom, which is a Halloween dance party. And so already I'm starting to promote it uh, and get it out there. So that looks like uh, getting on all the music calendars in the area for the different radio stations. Uh, Basically, any place that I find that has a digital calendar listing of events, uh, all the different news magazines, online magazines. Uh, I try and get in touch with as many radio stations and DJs as possible uh, that play this kind of music and would be interested in letting their listeners know that this is coming up, uh, offering ticket giveaways. Um, Social media has been really wonderful in how we've been able to use paid advertisements. And it's been interesting seeing that arc for me in my career. Um, I started playing professionally. I played professionally for about 12 years, um, starting in 2000 and then uh, 
when I moved out to Boulder, Colorado in 2012, that was kind of the end of that period of my career. So the indie band I was in uh, throughout the 2000s was pre-MySpace. And then seeing, you know, being a part of the MySpace era and then the Facebook transition. And now that post era of that, of how, uh, you know, Facebook still being there, but sometimes it kind of feels like a graveyard for band flyers. And then, so it's like, okay, well, how do we, you know, use Instagram and, um, you know, I, I have different thoughts about TikTok in that way, but what I found is that the paid advertisements, which um, we couldn't do back in the MySpace era um, and using it a new way now on Facebook is so great because it really splits our two demographics. So we have the older generation that grew up listening to this music. And then we have a younger generation that might be discovering this um, all together for the first time where they might know these songs from, you know, playlists or movies or different things. But when they hear it all together, it's a whole new experience, which is what we're going for. So in a marketing standpoint, what I found is that using Facebook with paid, uh, very targeted ads for an older demographic, and then using Instagram with paid ads uh, for a very targeted younger demographic has been super helpful. So uh, that's something that already I'm starting to put into motion and thinking about for our October show uh, for the Halloween prom. Well, first off, a Halloween prom with Motown sounds like the party of the century. And I mm. am obsessed with this idea. I think that's fantastic. How fun. And then two, what is your budget when you're doing paid ads? Like what have you seen putting in and then getting a return back that's worth a band's while? Yeah. Uh, LM, I'm happy to answer that question. But before I do, I just want to say hearing you uh, share your reaction to the prom idea, just really, it feels so warm and it really made me smile. Uh, so for uh, anyone who can't see the video, I, I really appreciated that. And that's the the joy of doing this Ain't No Mountain High Enough uh, project is to create things that people feel as excited and connected to as I do and all the other band members. And it, it just reminds me of a story, a couple of stories I wanted to share, if that's okay. Um, you, you know, and thinking about marketing and all that, I was selling concert tickets online. It was to see uh, Marty Stewart at the Boulder Theater. And I uh, sold these tickets to a wonderful couple. And we uh, started talking at the show. And I was like, hey, if you like going to shows, like I'll copy tickets to this Motown show I'm doing. And they ended up coming and the feedback they gave me at the end of the night was just so, um, so heartwarming where um, the gentleman said that when he was in high school, he used to take a bus to go see the Supremes play live. And he hadn't thought about all those memories until he was at the show and we do a couple Supreme songs and our, um, our female vocalist Desiree Gold does such an amazing job. and. Uh, he after the show I was talking to him and he was saying how it brought back so many memories and it was such a joyful and like positive experience to go back into this time in his life that he had never thought about and then uh that same night I had talked to someone who was much younger and they were like oh my friend's saying we're going to this Motown show and I was like well I don't you know that's old music I don't really like that and they said 
song after song, they were singing every song and they were just so happy. And they're like, I'm just so happy. Like, it just feels so good right now. And so that kind of positive vibe and feedback from both ends of the, uh, you know, the audience members that were uh, wanting to reach out to is, is, is what makes it so, so powerful. Long way of saying thank you for sharing your excitement too. And would love to have you there. We'll talk after the show about that. But yes, so with, with budgeting, this is kind of a cliche in the music industry, but there's, or not a cliche, but this kind of like tongue in cheek joke about um, the only way to make a million dollars in the music business is to invest $2 million. And I think there is some truth in that with going back to the business model of with any business, you got to invest money to get it going. You got to invest money to get your product um, visible to people so that they know it's out there. And, uh, of course, up until the 90s, that's what record labels were for. And ultimately, just giving really awful high-interest loans to, to these bands that were excited to sign and then realizing they were in a lot of debt. But the idea was was that they were putting money out there, investing so much money, so that then um, you, you, know, you could see a return on your investment. And even the Motown model, which was cool, where they would take people from the neighborhood and then, um, you, you know, kind of put them through the Motown machine of investing and we're going to develop you as an artist. Uh, so when I think about budgeting, I started to look at like, how much money am I really spending on music? Uh, I buy, you know, guitar and bass strings. Uh, I'm paying for lessons when I meet with a teacher. I'm buying uh, albums, if, you know, I'm buying vinyl or, you know, money is going into so many different directions. It only made sense to me that I would also spend money on getting the product, getting the band in front of people who I hope would be interested in it. So I don't have a specific fixed number. It's just that uh, I try to spend as much money as is comfortable for me personally, because we don't have a record label. When I was in the independent band uh, throughout the 2000s uh, before kickstarter started we were kind of at the the front of the crowdfunding movement so we raised fifty thousand dollars through crowdfunding with our fans to um you know help with our album we went to abbey road and we did a live broadcast there so it helped pay for that uh but what that showed me was how important it is to get people involved and you know to use that as a way to grow the product So just finding whatever money is accessible at the time for, you know, my personal budget to then invest, but then also seeing like, are there other people that are willing to invest in some ways? And so that looks different for all sorts of bands. We did crowdfunding back then. Uh, People might have, you know, independent labels now, Uh, but then also reaching out to the venue that we're playing at. Like, hey, can you help with advertisements or can you help with comped tickets or can you help um, with sending out the press release? So, um, you know, those specific things aren't us spending money, but it's, you you know, collaborating on how do we get uh, money that can go out. What can artists do to build those solid relationships with venues so that there is um, more of a comfort in asking for things that the band might need help with? Um, And do you have any advice about maybe things you can do, ways you can communicate with a venue so that it's a great relationship for both parties? 
Yeah, that that's such a great question because it is, um, you know, there's two entities in that relationship. And like any relationship, there's one side that might, you know, be working harder than another. There are different communication styles. Uh, there's different expectations. Uh, so I think in any relationship, it, it goes back to uh, being really clear about what expectations are um, and expressing needs too and wants. Like again, like like any relationship, being able to say like, this is really what we're needing from the show, or this is what we're really wanting from the show. And of course, you know, everyone, it's important to have healthy boundaries. And so, you know, the venue might say, we can't do that. Or the artist might say, you know, we're not going to play for five hours. Uh, but I think being able to have conversations in that way is so important. So I think setting that uh, expectation or even modeling that type of relationship right at the beginning can be so helpful because then it just gets the ball rolling and then those things can get cleared up and communication styles can get understood, you know, when it's not three days before the event. So that would be the other thing is the second the show is booked, hopefully it's, you know, long in advance, then you can have the conversation around, this is what we're wanting or needing. These are our expectations. This is what would make it, you know, a huge success. This is what we need kind of minimum. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think that's great. I mean, communicating, I think the thing about communicating it as early as possible so you can flesh out what everybody needs and wants and can do and then, you know, react accordingly and make those plans before you you know, you're posting a day before the show being like, "Please everybody that I know come because I didn't realize that, you know, there were things that the venue wasn't doing." Um and, you know, every venue has a different size and a different structure and different platforms that they're also functioning within as well. So absolutely. That's great advice. Um, yes. And you know, I was hearing, hearing that LM too. I was thinking about how, uh, yeah, it's just, it never hurts to have the information be as accessible and as out there as possible. And the venue can do that, you know, so much on their end, uh, but then also up to the artist to you know because for us it's most important to us like the venue it's important that night you know and, and they want you know to have a really great night but for us it's so much more than that night it's everything that came before it and maybe even years and years and years of passion and hard work and you know the heartbreak that goes into uh craft and the creative process and so i think honoring that for ourselves of recognizing this is so important and I, I want everyone as, as possible who would be interested in this to know and so uh how can we get this word out to as many people you know and, and i think there's you know aspect to that of uh being discerning too I, I made the joke with one of our band members that when um cu boulder had their spring football game uh this spring and it was you know televised on espn it was such a big deal for Deion sanders we had a show uh the following week and i was like you know i was joking around i was like wow i'd love to hire a plane to pull the uh you know to pull the banner you know going across the stadium but the reality is is that that's not landing those people aren't you know however maybe 10 people it wouldn't you know of course make sense but the idea is how can we cast a wide net you know so then it comes back to the paid advertisements that we might be doing or ticket giveaways and things like that but it reminds me um 
Another way I've been trying to market and promote is using Nextdoor. And uh, you can do, do paid events on Nextdoor. And then also you can post an event. And especially, again, with the Motown thing, it's kind of an older uh, demographic that's most uh, readily drawn to it. And a, a lot of that um, the population can be on Nextdoor. So I'll do Nextdoor ads. But then with their algorithms, sometimes stuff gets lost. And I had someone comment uh, the day before our spring show that was like, oh, wow, I wish this was posted sooner. I would have loved to have come. It was like, oh, my gosh, I posted this three months ago. Uh, you know, but they just didn't happen to, to see that. But for me, that's like one of the most heartbreaking things because it's like, oh, this is someone that really was excited for it and really wanted to uh, go to it. Um, and so it just speaks to how even doing something months in advance there's still, you know, people that will fall through the cracks that might have really wanted to go. And then uh, LM, I know I'm being long-winded here, but that reminded me of something else. I was just thinking, uh, I listened to your interview with Dave Tampkin uh, on the podcast, which was such a great interview. And he mentions the importance of building uh, one fan at a time and how like it's so important to get phone numbers, get emails. Not only that, just having a connection, like talking to the people that might be interested in the same thing that you are, which is, you know, your art or your passion or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. And so thinking about that next door story, um, part of my marketing plan for Halloween is to reach back out to that person, give them comp tickets to the show, hoping that they're going to, you know, bring people or if not, that's okay too. But letting them know that like this is more than the music, more than the band, more than a performance. We want to build this as a community that people have fun with or are fun at. And because they couldn't be there last time, I'd love for them to be there this time. Wow, that's really incredible. I think the idea of making the business personal and really taking the time to remember that. I mean, like imagine, yeah, I just think if any of your favorite bands ever did that where you, you know, you, you comment and you're like, man, I missed it that sucks. And then you got a message. It was like, Hey, we're going to be back in town. Here's tickets. We want to see you. We, we appreciate you wanting to see us. I mean, that's like a lifelong, that would make me a lifelong fan. I would be like going to the board for that band and talking about it and being like, these are amazing people, amazing musicians. Like that's, I think something too, maybe just to take into life in general. It's like, you know, yes, being kind and really listening and paying attention to people and, you know, having that connection is invaluable compared to, you know, maybe just sending a message and being like, hey, we're come out to the show. We're gonna be there. I mean, that personal touch, I think that's just fantastic. And like I I mean I'm Honestly, like, I want to know, I have to know how the story ends. Like, I want to know if they come and are they going to be so excited? Like, now I'm invested. I think that's just so fantastic. Yes. Well, so so something we do too. uh, This is so great because this is absolutely something that can happen in in real time in October is that whenever we invite people comp tickets to the show, you know, for every show, we do a very special branded flyer. Um, So right now there's a sole DJ in LA who goes by the handle Devil One, who uh, makes flyers for uh, a lot of 
soul performances out in LA and then uh, has worked with a lot of the wonderful, brilliant DJs uh, in Colorado. And so he designs our show posters for us. And so whenever we do uh, comps, we print out the show posters and have everyone sign it. And, you know, so it's just something that, you know, we offer and like as a thank you for coming. And we hope that this is uh, something you can take with you as a reminder. Um but but so if, if this person goes and if you're able to make it, you all uh, will will get the posters. You'll be able to meet each other. Uh, I guess is what I'm getting at. Oh my gosh, absolutely! But, you know, I'll that- have to bring my phone microphone and do like an impromptu, like, "Hey, we're gonna do a little mini update on the podcast because this is incredible." Like, what do you guys think? Oh, uh, that would be so great, so great. But yeah, th- there is uh, that idea, that human element that you named of um, we're all in this together whatever the this is like we're in it you know and, and we got to do it together because we're you know communal tribe species we we, we got to be there with each other and so at our shows that's a big thing that we're aiming for is to like remove the invisible wall between the like artists and performers and the audience and like, let's just bring it all together. Something we've done in the past, which has seemed to work really well, is I always introduce the band uh, right at the beginning and then introduce as many people working the event in the room as possible. So no, no longer it's just some random person at the door that's checking IDs or, you know, it's like, you know who that is. And they're here tonight, too. Like, we hope this move music moves them. We hope you all have a great, you know, connection and great vibe together. And that goes for everyone. Sound, um, you know, security, the bar staff, absolutely everyone. And, and thinking about the the background and history to that, when in in the when we were doing the crowdfunding thing for our album, I think it was around 2007 or 2008, one of the things we offered, and of course, it's a little different because people are paying for this. But one of the things we offered was uh, it was getting into being the fall season. And so the band offered, hey, for this amount of money, if you donate to uh, our album, we'll come and cook Thanksgiving dinner for you and your friends. You, you know, not on Thanksgiving Day, but for like the weekend before. So uh, a group of fans got together and they made the donation. And then the band came and we did Thanksgiving dinner for them. And the band was called Shane Hines and the Trance. Uh, so they had so much fun. We all had so much fun with it that they named it Trancer Thanksgiving, uh, initialed it TTG. And I think to this day, it still goes on for this friend group where they meet together. And and then after that, for years, we uh, we would keep in touch with them. And, and then every time we would just do this, you know, as we'd all hang out, we'd invite friends and uh, became a thing. And it made it so much more than the music, so much more than our album, you know, that we recorded that. Yeah, we were super proud of it and pumped. But like, we just got to have these cool experiences with people now that is so important yeah that's really the power of community and like why we're all making art right is yes to connect with people and have those experiences and yeah i mean making stuff is cool but being able to connect on a human level and see something grow with longevity and kind of take on a world of its own is so much more rewarding than you know you could ever hope to imagine yeah and and i know for myself like that's what makes a great song you know, for me is that when I'm listening to it and usually it happens like if I'm alone, you know, in the car or just like lying on the floor or something and you hear that one song, it's just like, oh, it just like gets in my heart. And it's like, wow, that like that song got me, 
And then there's that connection through the music, which is so powerful. And that's like, okay, so how how to grow that to then the artist? Or if there's no connection with the artist, the other people who also were so moved uh, by that song. Absolutely. So in the spirit of community in, you know, these amazing shows, can you tell me a little bit about your collaboration with Roots Music Project and how you guys approached your show there and what that experience was like? Yeah, I absolutely love working with Roots Music Project. And I feel like I owe them so much because that was the organization that uh, brought me out of retirement, so to speak. So, um, you you know, I had been playing since 2000, moved to Nashville in uh, 2010, was there for about two and a half years, and then moved to Boulder to become a therapist. And now I have a career as a psychotherapist uh, working in mental health. And when I moved here, I put the bass and guitars under the bed. And really, it was like, that was it for five or six years. Uh, I just totally unplugged and wanted to reset from my relationship with music and kind of explore myself in a different way. And so I met the guys from Roots, uh, Dave Kennedy, John Oren, Rick Gabler, and Rex Peoples when I was um, called in to sub uh, on bass for a gig. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is so cool. This is such a supportive group of musicians and guys. And like, this is fun playing against music. It started to get where it wasn't fun for me anymore. Um, but it, it was like, wow, this is so much fun. I can't believe this is here. Like, I want to be a part of this. I want to be making music with people and just talking about music to people and, you know, geeking out about gear and shows and, you know, uh, new albums that dropped and things like that. And so then what really happened, the big change was during the pandemic, um, we were all in kind of a, uh, a COVID pod together. And so we would go to the warehouse to uh, jam. And it had always been this passion of mine to do this Motown project. And Dave Kennedy and John Oren were like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's give it a try. And so then from there, it just it snowballed. So um, then through Roots Music Project, we connected with uh, Hazel M- Miller and Kimiana Lee, and they were the first vocalists for the project and uh, all the other musicians that were part of it. Uh, Kate and Solenberger um, played on that video and Steve Illich was on trumpet. Mike Tupper was on saxophone. Uh, it was just incredible to have this this community and so it just it's grown since then where i'm always able to go to roots and find musicians that can be uh, you know on the next project or in the next show because a lot of our musicians are hired guns are kind of a rotating cast of players uh so um meeting new people there and then having a space to try this crazy idea because it's it's been so successful and we've had about a 25 percent audience growth for each show which which is amazing which feels so great and it, again it's like repa- uh, repotting the house plant it it feels like a good step up each time uh but roots gave us that that venue to do this and they've been so helpful with uh, helping us decide like okay how do we want to do this show uh you know do we do standing or seated or uh, a mix of both or what do we try and it's it's just yeah really wonderful and I guess I'm having a hard time describing it too because I'm relating to it in two different ways I'm relating to it as 
you know, the the band having a show there coming up. But then also in uh, in in the therapy world, uh, supervision is so important, and especially like the idea of group supervision. So having peers that you can reflect on about your work, and so in the music world, the Roots Music Project community is almost like that music peer supervision, where whenever I go to a show there, whether I'm volunteering or if I'm a, a ticket buyer. I know that I'm going to see people there that are part of this community that, you know, can give me feedback on what I'm doing. And I'll respect that knowing that they're in it too, and that I can hear what they're doing and the different things that they're trying. I know um, there's an artist, Christopher Morse, who has a show uh, coming up there um, with Dave Canton as well. Uh, And they've gotten some great ideas on merch. And so I just love brainstorming and hearing uh, all the exciting ways that they're uh, creating new merch and new merch opportunities. So really Roots Music Project is the venue, but then it's also this kind of like peer feedback group of all of us that are in this kind of crazy music music business. I'm sorry, I know that, uh, was there something more specific to you that I could add for... No, uh, that's fantastic. No, I mean, I think that's great. You know, it's like a, a sounds like is a really integral part of what you're doing now. And also, I mean, so cool, again, on that community idea of having people around that you can talk to, they get it that maybe can give you new ideas. And, you know, also just be excited about what you're doing. And you can be excited about what they're doing. And I don't know, that creates this awesome cycle where everybody's like, we're just going to keep going and like, see what we're going to come up with. I think that's the perfect way to describe roots. Like that's every time I'm there, it's the same thing. It's just great vibes and really fantastic people. And like, you know, what you want in a local scene is exactly sounds like what you're getting. So I'm, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess thinking from the specific artist side, uh, they are so helpful when we book gigs with them of uh, getting our press releases out there. Cause it's, you know, important for me that we have a press release that we can send out. So they have uh, so many different contacts that they're able to send it out to. And then uh, trying different ideas. They're so collaborative on like, okay, what do we want to do with, uh, you know, the, the prom or we have a spring fling that we do. How do we want to add something a little bit different? So one year we bought, we brought in the uh, Boulder uh, Swing Dance uh, Club to do a dance les- lesson before the show. And they helped coordinate and organize that. And then, of course, ticket giveaways to the radio stations. Um, yeah. Do you have any last words of wisdom to other band leaders out there? They're struggling with booking or marketing or promoting or just figuring out the whole business side. What do you think? Any any little nuggets for them to take on and run with? Yeah. Um, well, I get it. It's hard. It's it's absolutely hard. And, you know, I, I imagine that they're doing it because they love it. You know, we're all we're all in this because we really love it. I think in terms of bands having like a band leader or a music director, I think that role is so important because it's so needed to for other band members to know, okay, who do I go to? Like when I have a question about, you know, load in or the set list or payout, or is there going to be food? Do we get comp tickets? Um, or even like, like in a larger scale if there's a lot of musicians like okay well what is the rehearsal schedule like do we start promptly do we end promptly uh 
so I think having someone in that position is the first thing. It's, it's so important. And, you know, bands obviously ha- or can have managers, which take on stuff. But I think having someone in the band that is kind of the designated go-to person, so important. And then if that is your role, and oftentimes it's the songwriter or maybe the front person, um, you know, just kind of by default, and that's totally fine. But then if you're realizing that you've been put in that role or the band members are going to you in that role, then it's important to be able to own that too and to self-organize in a way that says like, okay, I want to be able to take all the feedback, good and bad, and I want it to be safe for, you know, people to complain about things that, you know, aren't going well and that that's okay and that there's space for that. And then also the need to be uh, organized and to really think a few steps or plays ahead of everyone because that's only going to help the success of the group. Um, if you already know ahead of time what uh, some expected questions might be. And then if you're not comfortable with that, it's okay to have someone else do that. And there's, uh, it's not an ego thing. It's just a structural organization. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time and all of your perspective on the industry. I had so much fun talking to you and I please would love to come to the Halloween show. Anybody listening, come out to the show. I'm telling you, just from my own vision, it's going to be so much fun. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks again for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, LM. This was uh, such a great conversation. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Sonic Guild Colorado Podcast's collaboration with the Roots Music Project. Check out the links in our show notes to experience an Ain't No Mountain High Enough event and to become a member of Sonic Guild Colorado.